You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Now, in this text this morning that we are looking at here, Peter addresses those who are slaves within the churches that he writes to throughout Asia Minor. And I agree with Thomas Schreiner uh, when he says that the exhortation is addressed to slaves, but slaves function as an example for all. And so the principal enunciation applies to all believers. Now, with that said, uh, since slaves are specifically addressed here in this passage, I thought it would be good for us to talk a little bit about slavery. Um, there were many ways that one could become a slave in the Roman Empire. Often people were enslaved after having been conquered or captured in war. Uh, some were kidnapped and forced into slavery. By the first century, there were many uh, that were slaves because they were born into slavery. Their parents were slaves, and so when they were born, they were born as slaves. Also, there were those who had willingly subjected themselves to slavery. Uh, one reason would be to pay off debt. Uh, one uh, thing that often happened was that if someone was moving from one area to the next, someone may pay for them to do that. And so then to work off that debt, they would commit themselves to that person as a slave. There was other reasons, too, that someone may be in debt and so willingly subjected themselves to slavery to pay off that debt. There were some, though, too, that fell on financially hard times. And so to provide for their family and themselves, they gave themselves into slavery. There was also those who purposely became slaves because they recognized that they were actually better off having a master, knowing where their next meal was coming from, and having a roof over their head than trying to make it on their own. Because in the Roman Empire, uh, to uh, those who were able to move forward and advance themselves in society were really only a select few. Uh, to advance in society, you had to have wealth and property. And so most people could not do that. And so instead of trying to make it on their own, some found it better off to enslave themselves to a master who would provide for them. So as we, we think about this, we should understand that there are many aspects and reasons for slavery in the ancient world. And so we should be careful not to impose all of our understanding of slavery from our nation's history and what we've learned in school and all those things on every aspect and every understanding of slavery. It's not all the same thing. Although for sure there were immoral aspects of slavery in the, in the ancient world, uh, for sure. Uh, there were plenty of times where people were mistreated or treated harshly, especially those who worked in mines or on farms as slaves. <clears throat> And with the ugly side of those things and those immoral aspects of slavery, uh, we see that, that many slaves were abused in, in many unthinkable ways. Um, there were some slaves, though, that were treated well. 
Uh, some slaves that uh, were treated almost like family, especially those who were household slaves, who worked very closely with their masters. But also, to society viewed slaves as less than a person. And so there were moral codes, uh, things that were written uh, to regulate morality, and there were moral codes that were written to slave owners, but not to slaves. Because again, slaves were considered less than a person, and so not morally responsible. But the slave owners, they were considered responsible, so there was writings on how they should treat their slaves, and some compare that to how people talk today about how we should treat animals humanely. And so this is how you should treat your slave, because that's how they viewed slaves. Um, So when we look to the scriptures, and we see the Apostle Paul, or we see here in our text for this morning, the Apostle Peter addressing slaves and telling the slaves how they should conduct themselves— That's a real significant thing. In doing so, Peter is saying, you who are slaves, though society views you as less than a person, you are just as much made in the image of God with the value and dignity that comes with being made in the image of God as anyone else. And really, Gentile churches at that time were mostly made up of those who were slaves. And so they often had working in positions in the church as elders or as deacons or serving in ways that anyone else in the church would also serve as. Because in the church, as Paul writes, it didn't matter whether you were Jew or Gentile, slave or free. What mattered is that you were in Christ. That's what matters. And for all our life situations and backgrounds and everything else, what matters is that we're all in Christ. And so we, we should understand and, and, have, and understand the New Testament perspective uh, on, on slaves. Um, nowhere does the New Testament or scripture, the New Testament um, uh, say that, you know, command slavery or, or promote slavery, but it, it does look at the fact that there are slaves in society. And so as you function as a slave, Peter is saying, this is what you need to do. And, and we're going to look at again and remember, what, what is Peter talking about? What are the reasons he's given for these things in this text? Now, as we go through this, before we jump into the passage, I want us to be thinking about why we do what we do. Uh, I want each one of us thinking, okay, why do I do what I do? And thinking, all right, do I do what I do? Do I make the decisions I make so that I can have a comfortable life? So that I can find the road with less resistance and, and be comfy in my life? Do I do what I do so I gain acceptance from other people? That I want people to think of me a certain way, to treat me a certain way, and so by that, that decides how I live and what I do. Or, do I do what I do because I do it for the Lord? Do I live my life for God, to bring him honor and glory in everything? Why do I do what I do? I I want us to be thinking about that as we, we look to this passage. Last week, we started a a new section in 1 Peter. As Peter has pointed his readers to the gospel, to their living hope that they have been born again into through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Having this new birth into this living hope, having an inheritance, a a future salvation, uh, this grace that will be brought to us when Jesus Christ is revealed, Peter has called then his readers to pursue holiness and pursue holiness to the extent that God himself is holy. 
And in living holy lives, we are to live as strangers in this world, abstaining from fleshly passions that war against our souls, keeping our conduct before a hostile, unbelieving world attractive. And as we discussed last week, in beginning to unfold what it means to live that way, Peter addressed three area, is addressing here three areas of submission. And so last week we looked at the first area, which is submission to all human institutions, specifically to the government. And now this morning we're going to look at the submission of slaves to their masters. And so again, we remember, what, what's the goal? Why is Peter calling for such submission? Because as we live here as aliens and strangers, as we live abstaining from our fleshly passions, we are aiming to keep our conduct among Gentiles honorable or attractive so that when, they, when the world speaks against us as evildoers, and specifically as Peter's writing to his readers, writing to the slaves in the church, he very well can be speaking specifically here of those who have unsaved masters. Uh, when they charge you with evil doing, when they mistreat you as if you've done something wrong, that instead let your good deeds glorify God on the day of his visitation. So again, we, we discussed last week the, the overarching point that Peter is making and how we should live in this world and, and what are we presenting to the watching world before us and what that means and, and how that relates to our submission. That we are aiming that for those around us who don't know Christ, that they may be drawn to Christ by our conduct, that we, by the way we live our lives, may have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And so our hope is that some might be saved. And that in being saved, they would glorify God for his great and awesome salvation. So as we look at the text here this morning, verses 18 through 20, here Peter explains that slaves are to be subjected to their masters. And he points them to the motivation to do this. And then in verses 21 to 25, we see that believers are called to suffer even in their submission, even for doing what is right. And Peter points them to Christ as the example that they are to follow in this. And as we go through this passage here, I think we should consider what Peter says about submission and who we submit to and why and when. And even as we were talking about submission to the government, I think we need to think about this together. Who is it that we submit to and why do we submit to them? And I think this has significant um, impact on, on how we live and how we think about authority. So let's, let's read our text here for this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So again, we, we look at this first part, verses 18 through 20, where Peter here calls slaves to be in subjection to their masters. And he addresses, as it says here, slaves. And the word for slaves, at least uh, as the English Standard Version has it, it says servants. But the word here refers to those who were household slaves. But Peter, again, is addressing these members of the church as an example for the principle that applies to all. And probably he can do this because it may have been that the household slaves made up a majority of the membership in those churches, and often did. And so as they're to live as strangers in a hostile world, keeping their conduct among Gentiles honorable in hopes that unbelievers would be saved, even those who malign Christians— even those slaves who had harsh and un, unfair and, and abusive masters, the slaves in the church were to be subjecting themselves, submitting themselves to their masters, even as all were to submit themselves to the government. Now, some argue the word here for masters is specifically used by Peter to uh, point to masters who were not Christians, who were unsaved. And, and that very well may be the case. I'm not 100% sure on that, but uh, it seems like a reasonable argument. Uh, the Greek word that's used here is where we get our English word despot. And so the word certainly means one who is a master, who is a lord, uh, one who even had ownership over slaves. And to such masters, Christians were to submit. Whether they were good and gentle or whether they were unjust. And the word here, unjust, could also be translated as perverse or, or immoral. Uh, the word literally is crooked and referring to moral crookedness. So clearly then, the one to be obedient to, the one one is to submit themselves to, they do not submit to only to the extent that they are a moral person. So sometimes we hear that, that if the person is immoral, even if they're an authority, we don't need to submit to them because they're an immoral person. I, I don't think we get that from Peter. I, I, he clearly says, these ones who are crooked, immoral, that he's still calling to, for submission to them. Though again, as we discussed last week, we're not saying that those who are in authority are absolute authorities. If their dictates put us outside of God's will— or they step outside the boundaries of their sphere of rule, we should recognize they do not have absolute authority. But at the same time, just because something they demand may cause loss or pain to us, that doesn't mean we shouldn't submit. Just because those in authority may be wicked doesn't mean we ignore their authority. Put it this way. Let's say you're at work, and your boss is wicked and dishonest and crude, and your boss tells you that five or four out of the next five work nights, you have to stay late. 
you can't just ignore your boss and what he is telling you because he's an evil man. Now, if he's calling you to stay late to do something immoral, something that is against your conscience as you strive to be obedient to the Lord, uh, that's a different story. If he's saying, hey, stay late so you can cook the books so that things that are one way can look like they're really another way so we don't get in trouble and all those things, and, and it goes against your integrity, now that's a different story. I would argue it would still demand a respectful and humble conversation with your boss, uh, but nonetheless, that is a different story. And as we talk about submission, even last week, talking about with the government, I think what makes it hard is that we need to be aware of the times when we can't submit. Because God's dictates overrules any other authority. Yet at the same time, in our natural selves, we are natural rebels. And often, instead of having an attitude of submission like Peter calls for, we're looking for reasons why we don't have to submit. We're looking to see how my situation is the exception instead of the rule. We should understand and see what Peter is calling for here. This attitude of submission. That those who submit to Christ as Lord should be known as a submissive people. And so, yes, it is true, there are realms of authority, and, and one should not cross out of their realm. And, and we understand Christ is Lord of all the realms of authority. But are we always looking for that loophole? Are we always looking for reasons why I don't have to submit? Peter calls for a submissive attitude. And listen, I, I fully admit, too, not every circumstance will be as black and white and easy to balance uh, and when we should submit or not. Yet, nonetheless, we have to have an attitude of submission. We are to be a people of submission rather than the people striving for our own comforts, rather than the people fighting for our own rights. These comforts and rights that only exist in this temporary world. We should instead be more concerned with what will give an opportunity to share the gospel, what will affect the world around us, that people may look to Christ and be saved, to bring God glory, we have to measure everything through the lens of what eternally matters. And Peter, therefore, calls, and the idea of what eternally matters, he calls for submission. And again, with the idea of uh, an attitude, an inward attitude of submission, he says here, be subject to your masters with all respect. Even the immoral and wicked masters. Submit with all respect. The word for respect there is the word fear. Submit with all fear. And so just as Peter talked about fearing the Father who judges impartially, and we talked about what that means in our obedience to him, in living in that reverent fear, so too he calls for the same kind of submission to masters, having this obedient fear, this reverent fear subjecting yourselves to those masters with all respect. And what's the motivation Peter gives here for this? We see in verse 19, Peter calls for such submission because it is a gracious thing. 
but it's a gracious thing in a certain circumstance. He says, this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. When you submit, mindful of God, recognizing your life is for his glory, that ultimately you belong to him, that you are here to point people to him, then your submission is a gracious thing even when you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. So again, submission is an inward attitude. That we would care for the souls of even those who mistreat us, who would cause us to suffer. And verse 20 further explains verse 19, saying, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The master may be evil, and evil in how he punishes unruly and lazy servants, lazy slaves. But the master's evil response doesn't justify the slave's wrong behavior. The slave who suffers for doing wrong has no reason to pat himself on the back when he endures the harsh response of his master. But if the slave suffers for doing what is right and good, whether because the master is cruel to his slave even despite his obedience, or because the slave cannot obey both his master and God, and so does the right thing and obeys God, and so suffers for it, in either case, his suffering is a gracious, his submission is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What is a gracious thing? refer to here, but what God deems as praiseworthy. There's no reward when you suffer for doing wrong and for having a wrong attitude. And sometimes that happens, right? We suffer sometimes because of our own choices and our own sins. What reward is that in that suffering? But if you have the right attitude and you're doing the right things and you suffer for doing what is good, then that is praiseworthy. For that, there is a reward. And listen, no one, no one here is a slave, right? We don't live in that kind of society. And we're thankful for that, right? We're thankful actually for the, the Christians, the followers of Christ, who, who saw the principles and, and understood the teachings of Scripture, and so we're in a position to do away with slavery in the Western world, in our own country as well, and we are grateful for that. But even though none of us are a slave and owned by another human, we are still all under authority in one way, shape, or form. And we all must submit to that authority. And if you're in a position where you are struggling to submit to that authority, maybe it's at your job, for instance, or whatever the authority may be, you find yourself under and struggling there. Maybe you should consider that as a good opportunity to exercise growing in Christ's likeness and the growth of your attitude and your inward being, that you would have an attitude of submission, even if you're treated unjustly. Now, you might say, but Scott, can I, can I just get another job? Sure. Uh, if you have the opportunity to get another job and it's not going to hurt uh, your responsibility to your family and whatever your other obligations are to fulfill, you know, if it means a pay cut or whatever that, if it's not going to cause you to not be able to 
to be responsible and you have the opportunity to get another job, go for it, sure. But I think you should do some self-examination first. Why am I struggling to submit to authority? Is it because my boss is wicked and the things that he's doing and how he's, he's treating others and all of those things? Okay. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a better boss. You should consider that. But also, too, is it maybe even your struggle coming from your, your own inward attitude of not having an attitude of submission? If that's the case, you can get a new job, but you're just going to take the problem with you and continue to have that struggle because your attitude's wrong. And so we, we need to examine ourselves. As Peter clearly calls for an attitude, an inward attitude of submission, where are our hearts in all of this? That we would recognize uh, that we don't belong to ourselves. And God calls us to be under the authority that we are and be subjected to it. And so we're to submit, mindful of God, recognizing our lives are for His glory. And that ultimately we belong to Him. And that we're here to point people to Him, keeping our conduct among unbelievers honorable, so that they may see our good deeds and glorify God for His saving grace. That's what we're here for. So we should consider all these things. But also, too, why do we struggle? Why do we even struggle with our attitude? Even when we suffer and, and we, we feel we're, we're suffering unjustly, uh, what do we think we should get out of this life? What are our expectations for life? Do we think that we should have a comfortable life? As we live in this world as strangers in this world, where we are not yet in our ultimate home? I mean, what would have happened if we got too comfortable here? We would probably start living as if this is our ultimate home, right? We would start living as if we don't have an inheritance kept for us by God that we're waiting to enter into. No, we are to live here as aliens and strangers in a hostile world because that's what we are if we've been born again into a living hope. That's who God made us to be as he has determined for us to stay in this world for however he has planned. So we should not live here with a sentiment of entitlement as if we're supposed to have a comfortable life. I don't care what the preacher on TV or the radio or the podcast says. No matter how much faith you have, you're not going to avoid suffering in this life. We live in a sinful world. And we live in a world that's hostile to us who are strangers for Christ in this world. Matter of fact, in the rest of the section that we're going to go over here this morning, we see not only are we should not expect to have a comfortable life, but we've actually been called to suffer. Christians have a calling on their life to suffer to one degree or another, and in doing so, follow the example of Christ. And in doing so, then, we grow in Christ-likeness. Verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. You were called to suffer, and even suffer unjustly. Just as Christ did when he offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross. And if such a life 
is what Christ has called his followers to. No wonder he instructs would-be disciples to consider the cost of following him. Uh, to not just be flippant about calling ourselves disciples of Christ. But he says there in Luke chapter 14 that to be his disciples, one must first deny themselves. Recognize this life isn't about you. It's not about your comforts and what you think you should get out of this life. No, he says deny yourself. It's not about you. Take up your cross. Take up this instrument of suffering and death and follow Christ to the place where you die to yourself. So that we could say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be a disciple of Christ. This life is not about us. We die to ourselves. So to unjustly suffer for what is right is to follow Christ and follow his example, follow in his steps. And if anyone could be said that they unjustly suffered, it was Christ. Christ who knew no sin. Peter made it clear back in chapter 1, verse 19, that Jesus was not tainted by sin or any blemish. You and I have sinned. You and I, this side of eternity, will never live a sinless life. And there are times where we've suffered because of the consequences of our own choices and sin. That was never the case for Christ. That could never be said of Christ. He was perfectly holy and righteous. And in verse 22, Peter quotes from a prophecy about Messiah, the prophecy of the, the suffering servant in, in Isaiah 53. And he quotes verse 9 there to make the point that Jesus was sinless saying he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Christ did no wrong for which he should suffer. Instead, he remained wholly submissive, even when he was treated wrongly. Because all Christ did was good. All that he did was the right thing to do. It was always the will of his Father, even when the religious leaders of Israel didn't like it. It was still the right thing. And therefore, the matter in which he suffered and the reasons for which he suffered are an example for his disciples that those who believe in him would follow. Again, though we'll never be sinless like Christ in this life, we will not yet be fully like Christ until we see him. Yet nonetheless, because he was perfect, we can look to his example and aim to grow in Christ's likeness as we pursue holiness. In such a situation where we are being wrongly treated and we are unjustly suffering, many of us have the natural response to want revenge. Or at least many of us would want to defend and justify ourselves in our situation. But in the new birth, having hope that is beyond whatever we suffer in this world, the follower of Christ knows to follow Christ's example in this and to aim to be more like him and respond like he did in his suffering, which is not to repay evil with evil and not to take justice into one's own hands. We see in verse 23 just how he who always did what was good suffered 
And even as he was abused and was tortured, he did not retaliate or shout threats. Instead, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And Jesus knew he didn't have to justify himself. Jesus knew that right then and there, he didn't have to make everything right. Because he knew that the Father's will was that one day, every wrong would be made right. He entrusted him who judges, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Christ would soon be vindicated. And justice would be made known. And as we look at this and understand, we should know that we ourselves do not need to fight when we can trust that the Lord will fight our battles for us. We can wait patiently on the Lord when we trust that he is a righteous judge and he will not let injustice go unmet. We ourselves are but slaves, slaves to God, and taking justice into our own hands is not our prerogative. We must trust ourselves to the God who judges justly. In Christ doing this, Christ trusting himself to that faithful judge, he could therefore keep his face set on the purpose of why he came. That he even came to suffer in order to atone for the sins of all who would believe on him. That he came to die and provide salvation. So as we think about this, when we think about following Christ's example and responding to our suffering as Christ did to his suffering, I think it brings us back to the question again, why do we do the things we do? Are we looking to have a comfortable life? Which we already touched on. Or do we do what we do because we want to please people? We want people to think of us a certain way. We don't want anybody to get angry at us ever. Do we do what we do for the applause of the world? Or do we do what we do for God? Are we trying to please friends, family, co-workers? Or are we trying to please God? See, because if we're trying to please anyone else but God, then how we are living will not be in doing what is right and good according to God's standard of what is right and good. But we will be carried by every wind of opinion and moral stand, and whatever else might be that makes other people happy with us. But when our goal is to please God, then our aims will be what he has deemed as good. And we'll keep those aims, even if the world around us will see those things as reasons to come against us, reasons to malign us and say that we're actually evildoers. So we may suffer when we take immovable positions. We may suffer when we take an immovable position on sexual morality. Uh, we may suffer when we take an immovable position on the exclusivity of the gospel. That there is no other way to be saved. That if someone is going to have forgiveness of their sins, have a right standing before God, have their sins paid for in full, they must first come to Jesus Christ and to Christ alone by faith. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The world hates that message. They hate the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. 
or maybe in our personal lives, even in our day-to-day lives, as we go to work, and maybe in our jobs we're asked to do something that we find dishonest, that we're supposed to turn a blind eye to, or that we're to fix to make it look like something else is the case for the, the benefit of our boss or whatever it may be. And your integrity may then cost you in your job situation. But again, why are you here? To please people around you? To live a life of integrity? Which is it? Are you here for people or here for God? Aren't we here to glorify God by the attractiveness or the the honorableness of our lives? That we would live lives of orderly integrity? That even when the world may speak against us as evildoers, that they would still see our good works and glorify God on the day of visitation? My friends, if we persist in doing what is right, in obeying our God, even if we suffer for doing it, when we suffer, we suffer like Christ. And our hope is that God may use our lives to draw lost people to himself. That God would use our lives to open up people's heart to the gospel so when they hear the proclamation of Christ crucified, they may repent and believe. And in repenting and believing, be saved and glorify God for his great and mighty salvation. See, even the slaves that Peter was writing to, they they could be motivated to endure unjust treatment from their unbelieving masters in hopes that maybe even their master may come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the conduct of their lives. We are to endure suffering even for doing what is right as strangers and sojourners in this world, as we follow Christ's example, in hopes that our lives will glorify God by him using our lives to draw people to himself. That's our hope, that people might be saved. We're motivated by that. And in doing so, we follow Christ's example. But we have to understand, too, at the same time, Christ, on the other hand, he endured without opening his mouth, mouth as he gave his life as an offering for the sacrifice of sins. And he did this not to hopefully save some, not that hopefully people would would come to him and know him, but he did this so that people would be saved. That he did not provide a uh, potential salvation, he provided an actual salvation. That's the difference between us and our suffering in Christ. He suffered So that God's people, his elect, would be saved. And so we who have trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, we know this great salvation. Those of us whom he has saved, we know that Christ has done this for us. He died to pay for our sins, to satisfy God's wrath against us in our place. And so Peter writing to these churches, he says in verse 24, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By faith, Christ's death to sin was our death to sin. So we who believe have died to sin. So sin no longer has a claim on our lives. We no longer have to obey the urges of our flesh 
We can abstain from those fleshly passions. Because Christ died, not just so that we can have eternity with him, which is the greatest and awesome aspect of this gift, and not just so that we would not suffer his wrath and eternity because Christ has already taken that wrath upon himself. And in saying this, I mean that Christ did not just die to give us fire insurance, but he died that we may live a righteous life starting now. That we may live now to glorify him as he has made us his own, as he died and provided a true salvation. We are free to live for righteousness. And therefore, Peter follows what he says here by again quoting from Isaiah 53. He quotes verse 5 by saying, By his wounds you have been healed. And we all needed healing. For apart from this salvation that Christ has purchased, we are all in a rebellion against our God. You may even say, I've lived a good life. I'm a good person. But that's by your standard of good. We've lived naturally ignoring God's standard of good. We lived having been liars, been greedy, lustful, ungrateful, angry, and bitter. We all needed healing, and it's by his wounds we are healed. We, we find that forgiveness of our sin. Restored to a right relationship with God. And then Peter again makes reference, at least it would seem, to Isaiah 53. It seems almost impossible to deny that he's referring here again to Isaiah 53. Verse 6 specifically that says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Peter doesn't exactly quote that, but he does say here, for you were straying like sheep. And again, that's a true statement for each and every one of us. We all strayed from God like sheep. We all did our own thing, lived how we wanted to live. But then in the power of the Holy Spirit, God granted us repentance and faith. And this is true of Peter's readers. And so again, he could say to them, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's who Christ is. Christ is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And in coming to know salvation, we have turned back to him. And on this idea of Christ as the the shepherd and overseer of our souls, uh, Thomas Schreiner says this, He says, the word shepherd designates the leader and ruler over the souls, the soul referring to the whole person. So shepherd designates the leader and ruler over the souls of those in the church. The emphasis is not Christ's tenderness, which often comes to our minds with the word shepherd, but his authority. This is confirmed by the word overseer. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the term overseer refers to those who had authority in the churches. Here it is, refers to Christ as the ultimate overseer who rules over the church. Conversion involves returning to Jesus Christ as ruler and Lord. And that's exactly who Christ is. Christ is the ruler and Lord over his church, over your life. Do you recognize him 
as your Lord. He is, whether you do or not, but do you recognize him as your Lord? My friends, if we bow in submission to him, then the truth of his word is that we will then be a submissive people. If we confess Jesus as Lord, then we must pursue holiness and always seek to do what he has said is good and right. So then living as strangers in this world, we must abstain from fleshly passions, keep our conduct before unbelievers as honorable, that they may come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they would trust in him and glorify him on the day he appears. That's what we're here for. To obey our Lord, to follow our Lord, to glorify our Lord. So again, let me ask, why do you do what you do? What determines how you live? Is it trying to live for a comfortable life? Is it trying to please others? Or is it to please him who is the shepherd and overseer of your soul? Do you live for the one who is your Lord? Submit to him and therefore live a submissive life. Even if you're under wicked human authority, causing you to suffer unjustly. If that's the case, follow his example. Living as he has shown you to live by his own life. Responding to unjust suffering as he responded. And in doing so then, keeping your conduct before unbelievers as honorable. In the hopes that some may, through your life, have their hearts changed and be open to the gospel by the work of the Holy Spirit, that they would repent and believe that God would use your life to honor himself by drawing people to himself in salvation for his glory. Why do you do what you do? For the honor of man, for the honor and glory of God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visit nvbc.com.